I'm sure I don't have to tell you that one of the great ironies of social media is that it has turned all of us into brand managers. Regardless of what your occupation is, you are now an executive in the advertising industry. And the product that you are promoting is you. We, we, we live in a world now that tells us to promote ourselves in order to get ahead. We used to rely on references, but now we need to be our own best reference. And so, using the tools of social media and other things, we, we document our lives, we curate our experiences, and we put them out there for, for the world to see so that, we, so that they would know what a great life we're living. Students scrub their social media as part of their college application processes. Job applicants are really required now to be on LinkedIn promoting themselves. And, and, and all of this has actually led to the creation of the influencer industry. You may not have heard of that industry. I, I assure you, if you're under the age of 40, you know all about it. You're probably on TikTok and you see these influencers all the time. It is a five billion, with a B, dollar industry annually, and it is growing rapidly. I grew up in the 80s, long before there was social media. And back then, you know, the motto of, of the 80s came to us from, from Gordon Gecko of Wall Street fame, greed is good. But these opening decades of the 21st century, I think, are probably following a, a, a different motto. I don't know that it's been captured quite yet in a movie, but I'm reminded of Gore Vidal's assertion that heroes must see to their own fame. No one else will. And I think that really is what we see in today's world. You, the hero of your own story, tending to your own fame, because no one else will. Well, what if Gore Vidal's advice is wrong? What if humility, not pride, not self-promotion, is the path to greatness? We're in the middle of our study of the book of Daniel. Daniel was written to the Jewish exiles in Babylon in the early part of the 6th century B.C., at the time, Babylon was the greatest kingdom on earth. But, but Babylon had a long history. Babylon, the city of Babylon, was actually the site of ancient Babel. They're, they're, they're basically the same place. And Babel was actually where humanity first engaged in what we might call mass self-promotion. Building a tower to the sky to make a name for themselves. Well, way back then in Genesis 11, God frustrated those plans. And in our chapter this morning, in Daniel chapter 4, God once again has a message to the nations, a message for the proud. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, well, that's not me. I'm not proud. 
Well, I get it. Even in our culture of self-promotion, none of us like to think of ourselves as proud. But here's the question that the chapter, Daniel chapter 4, confronts us with. Whether you think of yourself as proud or not, what would it mean for you to be truly humble? What would it mean for you to be truly humble? Turn with me, if you would, to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provided, this is found on page 785. 785. Daniel chapter 4. We're going to look at the whole chapter. It's a long chapter, but we're going to look at all of it this morning. And let me just orient you. When we get to chapter 4, we've really come to the first great climax of the book of Daniel. I mentioned at the beginning of this series that chapters 2 to 7 are really all about God's people being at home in Babylon, that the experience of God's people in the world. And really, one of the main reasons that God's people need to be at home in Babylon is God has a message to the nations that he's giving through his people. Well, We've come to the first great climax of that part, kind of what's going on there with this message from God to the nations through his people. And yet what's so striking about chapter 4 is we barely hear from God's people in this chapter. Daniel is like a bit player. He shows up briefly. Most of chapter 4 is actually in the voice of Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, these are his last recorded words in the Bible which is kind of a big deal. Nebuchadnezzar is a major player in Israel's history. He shows up a lot. And today we get to the end of his story in the Bible. And and what his words are going to reveal is that Nebuchadnezzar got the message. God has a message to the nations through his people. Chapter 4 shows us that Nebuchadnezzar got the message. Here, I think, is the argument of the chapter. God is king, and he gives his kingdom to the humble. God is king, and he gives his kingdom to the humble. Nebuchadnezzar got the message. Have you? We're going to consider this in four scenes. Scene one, an unexpected confession. An unexpected confession. Look at chapter four, verse one. King Nebuchadnezzar, to those of every people, nation, and language who live on the whole earth, may your prosperity increase. I am pleased to tell you about the miracles and wonders the Most High God has done for me. How great are his miracles, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generations." All right, we're going to stop right there. The chapter begins with this royal proclamation. It is issued uh, 20 to 25 years after the end of chapter 3, after Daniel's friends were rescued from the furnace. I'll I'll explain why we think that later. Um, So it's 20, 25 years later. Basically, that means that Daniel and his friends are like now middle-aged men. You know, we met them when they were boys, teenagers, maybe young adults, they are now middle-aged men. And as readers, we've been reading along, we've, we've been watching Nebuchadnezzar interact with Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar interact with his friends. And, but, but now all of a sudden we get here and the, 
the, the contrast, the, the, the change is kind of striking. Uh, we're hearing from Nebuchadnezzar in the first person. That's not something that we've done so far. We've always heard him through the narrator. And something's changed with Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, you, you, can, you can see this as, as you look back at his, at, at kind of what he's been saying. So, so chapter two, at the end of chapter two, he acknowledges that the God of Israel is like the first God, the, the, the biggest God amongst the pantheon. You can see that in, in chapter uh, two, verse 47, the king says to Daniel, your God is indeed God of gods, Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you are able to reveal this mystery. So at the end of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has made space for God in the pantheon, and even acknowledged that God is the most powerful of the the many gods. But then then we get to chapter 3, and at the end of chapter 3, he's moved from just acknowledging God amongst the pantheon to, to actually defending Jewish worship. So you see at the end of chapter 3, verse 29, therefore I issue a decree that anyone of any people, nation, or language who says anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and his house made a garbage dump. So he's moved from, yeah, God's one of the gods, maybe the most powerful of them, to defending that God. Better not say anything against him. But, but now in, in chapter 4, At the very beginning of the chapter, not the end, at the very beginning of the chapter, he is singing God's praise. He is declaring God's praise. And again, thinking thinking about the the time frame, 20, 25 years in, he is doing it at the height of his power. In in Daniel chapter 1, chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has been on the throne maybe two or three years. But but now, man, he's, he's at peace. His, his rule is established. He is at the very height of his power. And he is declaring God's praise. It begs all sorts of questions, not least of which is what happened. Well, the, the chapter is going to interrupt his declaration. It's going to explain to us what happened, why he's making this declaration. But before we get to that, I, I just want you to notice what Nebuchadnezzar is saying. He's giving this kind of full-throated praise to God Most High, and he's not doing it privately like we've seen before, you know, in front of Daniel and his friends and maybe a few officials. No, this is, this is a royal proclamation. Couriers are taking this all across the empire. Everybody is going to know about Nebuchadnezzar's praise of God most high. It goes to all the peoples of every nation and language. And, and notice how personal it is there in verse 2. He, he's declaring what God has done for me. Not what God did for Daniel, not what God did for Daniel's friends. No, what what God did for me. He's talking about God in terms of like a personal relationship with God. It's striking. But, But notice that his focus isn't on what he's getting out of that personal relationship with God. Yes, God did these great things for me, but but the focus here is on how great God is. Verse three, his his kingdom is eternal. And not only eternal, it is universal. His dominion goes from generation to generation. It covers all people, all languages, every nation. The greatest king on earth at the time is declaring the unrivaled supremacy of God 
and God's kingdom over all. This is not just a, a, a declaration of God's sort of raw power. No, notice that it's a declaration of God's kindness towards him. The Lord has done great things for me. And notice how he describes it. This is a a message of peace. It is good news to the nations. Why is it good news? Why is he declaring that God has done something for me and this is good news for all of you? Well, it's because of who he is and what he's done for Nebuchadnezzar. And the result of that is Nebuchadnezzar's praise. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're wondering what God wants from you. What what, what does God want from you? What What does he expect from you? Does he want you to do something great for him? To prove your love, your worth, your whatever? Does, does, does he just want your good deeds? Get up there and make the world a better place? Does, does he want your, your piety? Your morality? Friends, what God wants from you is your worship. That's what he wants. He wants your worship, he wants your praise, he wants your thanksgiving. He wants your love. He wants your your loyalty. What what, what he wants is actually the only thing you can give him. Because after all, he's the creator. He made everything. He doesn't need anything from you. He tells uh, the psalmist, boy, if, if I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I own all the cattle. You can't give me anything that I, that I need. No, no what, what he wants from you is your heart a heart that is dependent upon him, a heart that's thankful for him because of who he is. Most of all, a heart, like we see here with Nebuchadnezzar, a heart that is fully delighting in him. That's what God wants from you. That's what he expects from you. This is what Nebuchadnezzar is giving to the Lord And it's what God is asking from you today. I I think it's all too easy when we think about God and maybe what he wants from us, what he expects from us, to think in really narrow terms of obedience or morality or piety or service. And look, it's not that those things don't matter. They do matter. But, But all of those things are kind of downstream from what God really wants. You see, if we start with those other things, if we try to give those things to God, immediately we're going to be turning our relationship with God into this transactional thing. I'm going to give you this because you need it. Now, God, you give me what I need. And it becomes this transactional thing. That is not what we're talking about here. If we try to give things to God as if they earn something from him, we've missed the point. God deserves from us and wants from us our lives, lives that declare his worthiness, lips that declare his praise, not to get anything out of him, but simply because this is who he is. This is what he's worthy of. 
And in that, we find our delight, our joy. So, so whether you're, you're a Christian here this morning that is secretly thinking, I still have to somehow earn God's love for me, or if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're wondering, what, what is it that God expects from me? I just want to be really clear here. Stop trying to earn God's love. Stop trying to earn it. You can't do it, and he doesn't want you to do it anyway. What he wants you to do more than anything else is to turn to him and delight in him, to find your delight and your joy in him because that's what he is. He is the most delightful. He is the most worthy. He is the most glorious. And in him we find not what he needs, but what, what, what we need. Now, let me speak to Christians just for a moment directly. Christian, understand this is the goal of our evangelism. I hope you heard in these opening verses, in, in that language of every people, nation, and language, I hope you heard in that phrase an echo going all the way back to Genesis 12, and, and a kind of preview of what we look forward to in Revelation chapter 7. God made a promise to Abram, and, and the goal of that promise was that the nations would be blessed through him. And that promise, we see that the ultimate fulfillment of that promise in Revelation 7 as people from every tribe, language, and nation are gathered around the throne, enjoying the blessing of God as they sing God's praises. What they're doing there in Revelation 7, in fulfillment of that promise all the way back to Abram in Genesis 12, what they're doing is they're delighting in God. They're finding their delight in God as they sing his praise. So, so I, I, I want to kind of reframe, reshape the way you think about evangelism, the way you think about telling people the good news about Jesus. When, when we share the good news, we're, we're not trying to impose anything on anyone. We're not trying to get them to do something for us or for God. No, we're, we're pointing people to the place where they're going to find their greatest delight. We're, we're pointing people to the person where, where they're going to find their greatest love. In, in that sense, evangelism is a little bit like when, when you've read a really good book and you can't wait to tell a friend about it. Or, or you've seen this really fantastic movie and you can't wait to tell a friend about it because you think they're going to really enjoy this movie too. Friends, that's what evangelism is. We've, we've found something absolutely delightful absolutely wonderful in Jesus. And evangelism is that same impulse of just saying, hey, this thing over here, this, this movie, this book, this Jesus is the best. And I'd love for you to know him too. So the next time you have an opportunity to talk to somebody about Jesus and fear grips your heart, and I get it because fear grips my heart, because I don't like people telling me that they don't want to hear about this book that I loved, much less this Savior that I loved, right? I don't like rejection. 
But remember, I mean, if they reject the book, if they reject Jesus, I mean, that's on them. You're just trying to tell people about where joy is found. You're, you're trying to tell people about where delight is found. Allow that to encourage you, to, to, to put a, a, a little bit of courage in your lips and, and in your gut when, when, when that next opportunity arises, because it is going to arise. Remember Nebuchadnezzar, who was pleased to tell people about this good news and pray that you would have that same attitude. Well, what brought Nebuchadnezzar to this unexpected confession? It brings us to scene two, an alarming revelation, an alarming revelation. This is going to be the longest scene and uh, the the longest part of the sermon, actually. Uh, let Let me read this section, beginning in verse four. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I had a dream, and it frightened me. While in my bed, the images and visions in my mind alarmed me. So I issued a decree to bring all the wise men of Babylon to me in order that they might make the dream's interpretation known to me. And when the magicians, mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners came in, I told them the dream, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. Finally, Daniel, named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and a spirit of the holy gods is in him. Daniel came before me. I told him the dream. Belteshazzar, head of the magicians, because I know that you have the spirit of the holy gods and that no mystery puzzles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I saw and its interpretation. In the visions of my mind, as I was lying in bed, I saw this. There was a tree in the middle of the earth, and it was very tall. The tree grew large and strong. Its top reached to the sky, and it was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful. Its fruit was abundant, and on it was food for all. Wild animals found shelter under it. The birds of the sky lived in its branches, and every creature was fed from it. As I was lying in my bed, I also saw in the visions of my mind a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called out loudly, Cut down the tree and chop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump with its roots in the ground and with a band of iron and bronze around it in the tender grass of the field. Let him be drenched with dew from the sky and share the plants of the earth with the animals. Let his mind be changed from that of a human and let him be given the the mind of an animal for seven periods of time. This word is by decree of the watchers and the decision is by command from the holy ones. This is so that the living will know that the most high is ruler over human kingdoms. He gives it to anyone he wants and sets the lowliest of people over it. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because none of the wise men in my kingdom can make the interpretation known to me, but you can, because you have a spirit of the holy gods. Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was stunned for a moment, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king said, Belteshazzar, don't let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, my Lord, may the dream apply to those who hate you and its interpretation to your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, 
whose top reached to the sky and was visible to the whole earth, and whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all under it the wild animals lived, and in its branches the birds of the sky lived. That tree is you, your majesty. For you have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown and even reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to the ends of the earth. The king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump with its roots in the ground and with a band of iron and bronze around it in the tender grass of the field. Let him be drenched with dew from the sky and share food with the wild animals for seven periods of time. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree of the Most High that has been issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people to live with the wild animals. You will feed on grass like cattle and be drenched with dew from the sky for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms, and he gives them to anyone he wants. As for the command to leave the tree's stump with its roots, your kingdom will be restored to you as soon as you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, may my advice seem good to you, my king. Separate yourself from your sins by doing what is right and from your injustices by showing mercy to the needy. Perhaps there will be an extension of your prosperity. All right, so we get to this, and, and if we've been reading along, we immediately think of chapter two again, right? This just feels like chapter two almost all over again, only this time, the king doesn't say, tell me what the dream was. The king reveals the dream, and the Chaldeans still can't interpret it. Now, once again, Daniel is called in. We see that in verse eight. Nebuchadnezzar knows that a message has been sent from heaven. He's alarmed by it. He wants to know what it means, but he's seen Daniel at work before. Three times he affirms the spirit of the gods is in you. So he knows that Daniel will be able to give him the interpretation. And, and the chapter is set up in, in, or this section is set up in two parts. It begins with, with Nebuchadnezzar being alarmed by the dream, verse 4. And then Daniel hears it, and Daniel is alarmed at the dream he's been told, verse 19. Well, we start with the dream. The dream is of this amazing, beautiful tree reaching up to the heavens. It's providing food and shelter to all. The tree is flourishing, and it leads to the flourishing of all that are under it and around it. But then all of a sudden, a watcher, an, an angel from heaven, comes down and gives the decree to, to cut down the tree. But don't rip it up by the roots. Leave the stump in the roots in the ground, bound by iron and bronze. And then the watcher explains why. And, it, and it's interesting because beginning in verse 15, the tree is now personified as a man. He, he, this tree, will be stripped of his, of his sanity. He will, will live like a beast in the field for seven periods of time. And then we're told the reason in verse 17, it is so that the living will know that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms. He gives it to anyone he wants and sets the lowliest of people over it. So that's the dream. Now, we're, we're going to get to the interpretation in, in a moment, but let me just pause and say that this dream, the, the images of this dream, is not unusual in the Bible. This is the way the Bible normally and usually talks about human authority. 
it describes it in really beautiful, wonderful, good terms. Human authority, according to Scripture, in in all of its expressions, is a gift from God. It it is meant to, to give expression to God's authority. And therefore, human authority always has the same purpose, regardless of whether we're thinking about it at like the family level or at the, at the heights of governmental level. Wherever human authority is being expressed, it always has the same purpose, to cause those under it to flourish. That's the purpose of authority. Not to oppress, not to dominate, not to grind into the dust, but to cause those who are under that authority to flourish, to to be protected, to be provided for, to to be able to live out a a fullness of life. Now, of course, human authority can and often is abused. I don't even need to give you examples, right? Just open up your newspaper today. You'll find them. Human authority is abused because of sin. But the abuse of authority does not make authority itself bad. Any more than the abuse of food through overeating makes food in and of itself bad. And I I think that challenges us a little bit. Christian, does does your attitude toward authority reflect the Bible's attitude towards authority? Do you you relate to authority as if it is a good gift from God? Or do you find that it's always something to be resisted, suspected? How about those of us that have authority? Does our use of authority reflect God's use of it? Whether we're a parent in the home or we have some authority in a classroom or or on the job, or maybe even the way we think about the way we exercise our distributed authority as citizens of a democracy. Does our use of authority, wherever we've been given it, cause the people under it and around it to flourish? Is that the way we think about the authority that we have? Or do we just think about exercising it? Are we we glad we have it because we'd rather have it than not have it? I think some of us probably need to walk away just from this description of this dream, describing human authority, and you you get a very similar image out uh, out of David at the end of 2 Samuel. You can go and read his last words. He describes human authority in a very similar way. I think some of us need to walk away from this thinking about changing our attitude toward authority. And some of us, maybe all of us, need to think more carefully about how we're using the authority that we have. All of us probably need to consider if our relationship to authority is shaped more by our culture than by our Christianity. Well, Daniel clearly respects the authority of the king. He respects the king. I, I think perhaps he might even love him. I, I mean, that, that, that tender statement 
Uh, he's alarmed by the dream, and he's like, oh, oh Lord, may this, uh, may this apply to your enemies, not to you. It's, it's striking. The meaning is clear to Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar is the tree, verse 22. And God has issued a decree against him, which, which means, that language of decree means it's not going to change. It's not going to be retracted. This is going to happen. He's going to be driven from human society in verse 25. He's going to lose his kingdom and his sanity as he lives like an animal for, for seven periods of time. And this is going to happen until he acknowledges that God is most high, that God is ruler over all kingdoms, and that he gives kingdoms to whomever he wants. In other words, Daniel understands the meaning of this dream is that God is going to take everything away from Nebuchadnezzar until Nebuchadnezzar humbles himself before the Lord. I wonder if you've considered what is most offensive about you to God. Maybe what first comes to mind is a particular vice that you have, a sin. Maybe, maybe you assume that what's most offensive to God about you is some some immorality that you yourself are even ashamed of. Friends, it's not any of those things. Yeah, those things aren't good, but again, those things are downstream. They, they are symptoms and expressions of what is most offensive about you to God. It's your pride. And I know that that's true, because that tends to be the thing that is most offensive to us about each other, right? I mean, we are willing to forgive and bear with all sorts of faults and failings over and over and over again. But what gets us, what galls us, what gets under our skin about each other is when someone pretends to be something that they're not. When, when, when they set themselves up as as better than. Yeah, that, I just don't even, you know, we don't want to be around that person. Do you know where pride shows up in your life? I, I mentioned at the beginning, none of us like to think of ourselves as proud, as prideful. So my guess is you might not. You might think of yourself as not proud. I'm here to tell you, you are. So it would behoove you to recognize where it is. Where, where are you proud? I, I would suggest that maybe, maybe one place to look is what's, what's that, that point in your life where you get really angry, maybe quickly angry, because somebody has questioned something about you? Maybe your anger flares up when your competency is called into question or your integrity. Maybe you feel this thing rising in you when, when somebody suggests that maybe you're not as kind as you consider yourself to be, or as loyal as you think of yourself, or as intelligent as you think of yourself. Ch chances are, I think for most of us, the point at which pride is most pronounced in our lives 
is a virtue that we're proud of, (laughs) a a virtue that we're glad we have, that, that we think, well, at least this isn't a place that I struggle. And when that virtue is touched, when somebody challenges your virtue in that point, the anger flares up. Friends, that's the place where you're proud. And it's worth trying to figure it out. It's, it's worth asking yourself, what would God have to take away from me in order to humble me in that point of pride? What would God have to remove so that at that point I was no longer prideful? It's a good question to ask because wouldn't it be better to humble yourself rather than be humbled? Here's the truth. Either in this life or on the last day, we will all be humbled. We will all acknowledge heaven rules. I want to suggest it'd be better for that day to be today than the last day. This is Daniel's point. Daniel is quick to point out that this dream has come as a warning, but there's mercy in the warning. He, he tells the king to, to repent. He says there in verse 27 to, you know, to separate himself from his sins, to, to demonstrate humility by ruling injustice rather than injustice, by, by showing mercy to the needy. And, and Daniel says, perhaps there will be an extension of your prosperity. Friends, it's no different with us. The the, the gospel, the the good news about Jesus Christ comes to us as both warning and as mercy. The, the, The warning is that God is right to be displeased with us because of our pride and then all of the rebellion that flows from it. And he will judge it. He will take everything away from us because of it even life itself, because everything we have is a gift from him. Friends, the the punishment for pride, the pride we take in our own lives, is the loss of that life. It is death. Death in our bodies and death in our souls forever. It it is to be excluded from that that image that we saw earlier of the life-giving, flourishing authority of God and instead to be under his judgment. But here's the mercy. We're being told about it in advance. We're being told that this judgment is coming in advance so that all who repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ might be forgiven of their pride and brought into that life-giving kingdom of God. You know, if, if there was any person in the history of this planet who had reason to be proud, it was Jesus. Jesus, who knew himself to be the Son of God, the eternal God made flesh. He, he had no sin in his life, no rebellion, no false pride, nothing to be ashamed of. 
But the Apostle Paul explains that the Son of God, who was equal to the Father in every way, humbled himself. He took on our flesh, and then he gave himself on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, serving as our substitute, taking our punishment for us. He died. He who is the maker of life submitted himself to death itself. He was buried. He he suffered the indignity of death, the humiliation of death. And yet, God honored him in that sacrifice. God demonstrated that he accepted Christ's sacrifice in our stead. He proved it by raising Jesus from the dead. And now, because of what Jesus did, God has exalted his son. He has exalted Jesus, seating him at his right hand on the throne of heaven. This is what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. If you, if you want to think about the opposite of pride today, take some time later and read about Jesus as Paul describes him in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. The watcher declares to Nebuchadnezzar that God set the lowliest of people over the kingdoms of men, and that's exactly what happened. Jesus humbled himself to the grave itself, and God exalted him. Jesus now reigns as king, but here is the beauty of the gospel. This king, King Jesus, is not filled with pride at what he did. No, he is filled with love for sinners like you and me. If you're not a Christian, this is what we want you to understand about Jesus. Not not that he's come down to lord it over you, but that the Lord of heaven came down and died for you, that you might be alive in his good, life-giving, flourishing reign. I'd love to talk to you more about this. Come find me afterwards. Talk to the person that you came with or that invited you. Talk to a family member that you think might understand this. But But above all else, understand this about Jesus. He is king, but he is the king of love for you if you will turn to him. Now, now perhaps Nebuchadnezzar responded to Daniel's warning, even as I hope you will respond. But perhaps, perhaps Nebuchadnezzar attempted repentance for a season, But it didn't last, which leads us to scene three, a profound humiliation. We'll pick it up in verse 28. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, the king exclaimed, is this not Babylon the great that I have built to be a royal residence by my vast power and for my majestic glory. And while the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared that the kingdom has departed from you. 
You will be driven away from people to live with the wild animals, and you will feed on grass like cattle for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms, and he gives them to anyone he wants. At that moment, the message against Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people. He ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with dew from the sky until his hair grew like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. All right, for 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar tries to be good. He tries to be humble. But his nature takes over. His true nature asserts itself. Nebuchadnezzar is walking around his palace in Babylon. We think probably at this point in his reign, this is one of the reasons we know this is much later. He's surveying Babylon. Probably what he's looking at are what are now known as the Hanging Gardens of Babylon one of the seven ancient wonders of the world that he built. And his heart is filled with pride. You you heard it as I read it there in verse 30. The emphasis is on the words, I and my, I built this, my power, it's for my glory, and it's the heart of sin. And and notice how the, the, the sentence is immediately executed. Nebuchadnezzar declares his pride, heaven declares in the same moment, His judgment. The kingdom has departed from you, verse 31. He's reduced to a beast, verse 32. We we don't know what kind of mental illness this was. Lots of people have speculated on it. I don't think we really know. We also don't know how long these seven periods of time were. Whatever they were, it was long enough for his hair to grow really long like feathers and for his fingernails to grow out like talons of a bird. The point is that apart from the grace and gifts of God, Nebuchadnezzar, for all of his pride, is no better than a beast of the field. Friends, there's a profound contradiction in the human condition. We, We are animals in the technical sense of the term. We are part of the created order. Our physical lives and bodies share much in common with all the other animals on this earth. And yet we know that we are more than animals. We are created in the image of God. There is is a a nobility about the human being. There there is something transcendent about us, something that transcends the, the merely physical and animal condition. And people like to talk about what is it that, I mean, non-Christians like to talk about, what is it that distinguishes humans from the rest of, of the animals? The, people will talk about our consciousness, that we have self-awareness. People talk about higher reasoning. People will talk about our use of language. But friends, I don't think it's any of those things, as great as they are. I don't want to lose them. But it, I don't think those are the things that really set us apart. According to Scripture, what really sets us apart from the rest of the created order is our relationship to God. We were created alone of all the creatures in His image. We were created to image Him before the rest of the world. We were created to represent Him, to to reflect His nature alone among the creatures. And it's this that makes our prideful rejection of him so grievous and so vicious. By rejecting him, we think we become like gods. But bereft of God, we are nothing but beasts. 
Before the gospel can be good news for you, it must first humble you. The gospel brings us to recognize that we are not just rule breakers and line cutters. We are brute beasts in our sin. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 1. We've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling creatures. All the different things that we worship instead, hoping to get value from, are but creatures. And in making that exchange, we debase ourselves. Friend, it's only when we realize this. It's only when we finally come to an end of ourselves that we will finally come to God. And that's exactly what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. It brings us to scene four, an appropriate exaltation. We'll pick it up in verse 34. But at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven and my sanity returned to me. Then I praised the Most High and honored and glorified Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and He does what He wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block His hand or say to Him, what have you done? At that time, my sanity returned to me, and my majesty and splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom." My advisors and my nobles sought me out. I was reestablished over my kingdom, and even more greatness came to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the king of the heavens, because all his works are true and his ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. From verses, about verse 19 all the way to verse 33, We lost Nebuchadnezzar's voice, first because Daniel's speaking, but then Nebuchadnezzar loses the ability to speak, reduced to a brute beast. But in verse 34, Nebuchadnezzar's voice returns. He looks up to heaven. He he acknowledges that God is most high and his sanity is restored. And now we hear the end of the song that was interrupted in verse 3. He actually picks up with the very same words that we were in verse 3 and now declares that not only is his dominion, is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation, but, but, but he's, he says, no, no, no one can resist God. God disposes of history and God disposes of the universe however he wants. And he is right to do it. He is the righteous judge. No one will be able to say to him, what have you done? You've done a bad job running the universe. You've done a bad job running my life. No one will be able to say that. Nebuchadnezzar confesses that God is the righteous judge. You see, this is not just a song of praise. This is a song of repentance. Nebuchadnezzar is not just confessing God's raw power to do whatever he please. He's confessing his righteousness, that he is right to humble the proud because of who he is. And so Nebuchadnezzar exalts God, not himself. 
and comes into a right relationship with God. And, and what does God do in return? Well, God honors him. He, he restores his kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar gives us the final conclusion. He says, God is exalted because all his ways are true and just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that when we exalt God as he deserves, rather than ourselves, God's response is not like our response would be. When people tell us how great we are, we get puffed up. We love it when people sing our praises. But, but that's not God. When, 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 when we acknowledge God for who he is, God does not respond by saying, well, it's about time. I mean, it is about time you realized who I am. No, friends, God's response to those who humble themselves before him and exalt him rather than self, God's response is to give them more grace. More grace. He restores Nebuchadnezzar. He gives him more glory than he had before. James, in the New Testament, puts it this way. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Friends, God's gaze, his gaze of love is drawn to the humble, to those who have nothing to bring him except their need of him who turn to Christ in all humility and acknowledge that what God says about us is right and that what we need, all that we need, is what he can give us. And what does God give the humble who turn to Christ in the humility of repentance? What does God give us? God gives us himself. He gives us God. He comes and he dwells in us. He unites us with his people where, where he dwells with us corporately. He brings us into his kingdom. Having given us Christ, will he not also give us all things? Friends, God is king. And that's good news. And he gives his kingdom to the humble. He gave it first to Jesus Christ, who in turn gives it to all who come to him. So please, understand this. We will all be humbled before God. The only question is whether we will be humbled by his mercy or humbled by his judgment on the last day. Pray that God would humble you now so that he might exalt you with his son in his son's kingdom, under his son's life-giving rule, now and forever. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, we declare that you are king. 
And, and yet our hearts resist that. Our hearts rebel against that. We want to be king. And yet we acknowledge that our rule over our own lives has only made a hash of everything. And so we pray that you would give us the grace to humble ourselves, to receive from you what we cannot provide ourselves. We pray that you would humble us to to continue to walk in the grace that you've given us in Jesus Christ. That our lives, whether, whether those lives go well or badly, whether, whether those lives appear humble and mean in the world's eyes or successful in the world's eyes, that our lives, however you choose to dispose of them, would exalt you. For indeed, you alone are king. And your rule is what brings us life. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Now hear this good word from King Jesus. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.